Thank you for tuning in to the New Birth Podcast. There's a word of hope for you today, and we are excited for what God is doing here at New Birth. For more information, visit our website, nvplaceofhope.com. Now for the message by our senior pastor, Gabby Mejia. Today we're going to start a new series entitled Revelation, and I want to encourage every single person in this room to please don't miss a single Sunday. And on that note, tomorrow we have prayer night. And typically or usually when we do prayer, at the end of prayer, I'll take a 30 minutes, 40 minutes extra to, uh, to give a word or, or a little small Bible study. And so tomorrow we're going to elaborate a little bit more on what we're going to be talking today. So uh, I want to encourage you to come and pray. Here's what this series is going to do. Here's what this series is. This is the goal of this series. To create in us a sense of urgency to pursue after God. To, to create in us a sense of urgency to pursue after God. And so I pray that after today you may want to come tomorrow to the Hope Center. And together we will pray for an hour. And shortly after that we're going to embellish some of the th things we're going to be talking about today and together we're going to just worship the Lord and declare declare God's promises over our lives. Amen church. So we're starting the book of Revelation and uh, the book of Revelation <clears throat> it's it's one of those books that's called prophetic. It's a prophetic book. And the reason why it's called prophetic is because uh, within the dynamics of the prophecy, okay, uh, prophecy has to deal with the unknown, right, the unseen, and things that haven't happened yet. That, that's, that's, that's how a prophetic book or a prophecy happens. You have what they call gift of signs, and gift of signs is when God uses somebody to highlight some things that has happened. Uh, but prophecy has to deal with things that has not happened. And so God gives us prophecy so that as we see those things come to pass, we can attest to the validity of the person prophesying. If a, prophes if a prophet prophesies, prophesies and it does not come to pass, then he is considered a false prophet. But a true prophet, what he speaks, the Bible says that God did not allow the pro none of the prophet's word go to the ground. Everything the prophet would speak, God would sustain, God would support, God would bring to pass. So when we look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a prophetic book. And it's prophetic. Oh, but let me just give you a disclaimer. Today I'm, I'm going to teach, so I'm, I'm going to try to teach, okay? Keyword, Try. I'm going to try to teach, so I'm, we might not get high today. But um, the, the book of Revelation is a prophetic book. And it's important to understand that in the context through which, in which the book was written. The book was written by one of Jesus' apostles. By the name of John, the beloved, the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest. He is also the one who wrote the gospel according to John. He is also the one who wrote first, second, third letter of John. And he has a revelation of Christ at a very crucial moment in John's walk. John was taken captive as a prisoner in an island called the island of Patmos. And he's there left sentenced to die. They tried to kill John by placing his body in a hot, boiling pot of oil. And they threw him in a pot of oil for him to burn and die. And the brother survived that. Couldn't kill him. Because there was a revelation God had for him. And I could, I could preach for an hour on that. Because sometimes your hot pot can't kill you because there's a message God has for you. And until you see certain things God has for you, the oil in the pot can't kill you. But anyway, so John 
after they dipped him in the burning pot of oil and he didn't burn and die. Well, he burned, but he didn't die. They took his crispy body and they took him to the island of Patmos. And the island of Patmos was where they would leave prisoners to die in this island. They were abandoned there. And in that state of abandonment, John has the revelation of the book of Revelation. Crispy burnt by himself in a cave. And the Bible says, Revelation chapter 1, that John was caught up in the spirit by the angel. Now, John may have not written literally the book of Revelation because he was burnt up. So he might have had a scribe, someone who would write what he saw, and he'll say it, and the writer would write it. And the Bible says that John was caught up in the day of the Lord, in the spirit, in the day of the Lord. He was caught up. And when he was caught up, the angel tells John, look and write. So whatever John is going to give us in the book of Revelation, he's going to give it to us from an eternal perspective. Because although John is physically in the island of Patmos, earth, his spirit is caught up in the heavens, and it's his spirit that is going to see what the book of Revelation entails. So although he's literally on earth, he's spiritually outside of himself, in the heavens, and he's seeing. As he's seeing, he is seeing from God's point of view. Let me explain that. The book of Revelation was written for the most part. Well, I'll explain that now. There's no chronological order, at least 80% of the book of Revelation is not written in chronological order. The only time the book of Revelation you see chronological order is from the moment of the rapture of the church, right, till the millennial reign of Christ. But there are events in the book of Revelation that don't belong in the chapters. It's below, not like chapter 14, 15, 16. The, 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 the one of those chapters talk about a baby that was rushed out to the desert because the dragon was about to kill the baby, and the baby is making reference, that baby in that, in that scripture is referring to Jesus Christ. The devil was out by King Herod. He was out to kill all the babies, and mother and, and Mary and Joseph took Jesus out, and they ran into the wilderness so that they don't kill him. John sees that in heaven. And he says, and the woman rushed with her baby to the wilderness, escaping from the, from the dragon to kill her. So, so I, I say this to say the following. When John is looking, he is looking everything happening at the same time. Because in eternity, there's no yesterday. There's no tomorrow. Everything is at the same time. That's why the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when John is looking... He's seeing what he's seeing, but what he's seeing is not going to happen in heaven. What he's seeing is going to happen on earth. So he already knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. So he's writing stuff as he's seeing. It's like, like for instance, I don't know who was the first person that sat here today. I don't know who was the first person that made it to the building today. Right? But from my point of view... I'm seeing everybody at the, same, at the same time. So to me, whether you came first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or last, it don't matter because I see you all at the same time. So you guys are the past. You guys are the present. You guys are the future. But from my stance, I can see everybody at the same time. So I know your future because I see it. I know your past because I saw it. And I see your So John is writing from that perspective. Everything he sees it. And then he comes down from heaven, spiritually, comes back to the earth, his body, and now he says, this is what I saw. 
And now, when we look at the book of Revelation, the Re book of Revelation is broken down in many elements. And media team, I'm going to make some changes. Um, I don't want to be as elastic as I was for service. And he makes some changes so that we can understand series of events that will take place for us to know the purpose of Jesus' return to the earth. Now, it's important that we understand this. The book of Revelation is anchored in three major pillars. That's why we got three pillars here. To understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand it by three major events or three major pillars that I call that are the pillars that sustain the prophetic revelation of the book of Revelation. The first pillar that is important in the book of Revelation is the rapture of the church. Why is that important? Because once this happened, a clock that hasn't been wrought, that has been stopped for over 2,000 years is going to start ticking again. So the rapture is a pillar to the book of Revelation. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming for a second time. When did he come the first time? When he was born. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 16. Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He came. And when he came, they rejected him. He came to his own and his own received him not. But to those who have received him, he gave them the power to be called children of God. Now, Jesus came. He went to heaven. But he's coming back again. So the second pillar in the book of Revelation or the second foundation in the book of Revelation is Jesus' second return. The third pillar is the judgment of the great white throne. Now, the judgment of the great white throne is different from the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to talk about that next Sunday. So what are the three major elements of the book of Revelation? And here's my goal. My goal is that by the time you finish these five weeks, you understand and know what are these three pillars. So would you please tell me what does this pillar represent? This represents... And this represents the judgment of the great white throne. Okay. Now, that's important. If you understand these three pillars, you'll understand the book of Revelation. It'll make sense. Now, the question is, John sees several episodes and things that happens as a result of the rapture of the church. Now the question is, where are we? Where are we in history? Before I get there, before I, get, before I answer that question, I want to ask you this. Why is the book of Revelation so important? Why is it important? Of all of the books in the Bible, why is the book of Revelation quintessential, important in our Christian walk? Because... There's a blessing to those that read the book. Let me just say this. The book of Revelation is not a, a book to scare people. It's not a cuckoo book. I don't read that book because, you know, there's too many dragons and demons and antichrist. No, no, no. No, no, no. No. First of all, let me just say this. The book of Revelation was written to the church. The book of Revelation was written for the church. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, the Bible mentions that there are seven churches that the angel sends a message to. Laodicea, Smyrna, right? Ephesus, Pergamos, right? He sends, he, sends, he sends letters to the churches. This is a church. This is a message to the church. The book of Revelation should be a book that everybody in this room should be reading all the time. Because it is a book that lets us know where we are within the clock of Jesus. It lets us know where we are in history as it pertains to things that has happened, things that are happening, and things that are about to come. That's why the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, listen to what it says. 
It says, blessed are those who read this book, hear the words of this book, and live by the words of this book. So just by reading the book, there's a blessing in it for you. And so today, I want to encourage you to read the book. I want to encourage you to hear the book. And I want to encourage you to live by the words of the book. Because when you read it, when you hear it, and when you live by the book, there's a guaranteed blessing in the book of Revelation. Now, the other thing it does is the book of Revelation, when you read it, it creates in us a sense of urgency. It creates in us a desire for more of God. It creates in us a desire to want to be deeper in the things of God because we know what's going to happen as a result of the revelation God has given us. But it's also a book of excitement and joy because we know that all of the things that will happen in the book of Revelation will happen after the church goes to heaven, which means we're not going to go through none of the things that's going to happen because we're going to go to heaven. So that's why I don't get scared when I read the book of Revelation. I get excited to know that in spite of all these things that is going to happen, God made a way that I could escape from all of that. Now, now the question is, why is God, because when you read the book of Revelation, there's destruction on the ecosystem, the destruction in the planet, the destruction, the lunar, the, the solar system, this is chaos. The question is, why is God taking it out on the earth? Why is God destroying the earth? Because of what's going to happen here. Here. And this is why it's important you understand what's going to happen. Let me, let me explain. Okay, you have the rapture of the church, right? After the rapture, you have the second coming. But between the second coming and the rapture, there's some things that's going to happen. Between the second coming and the judgment of the great white throne, there's some things that's going to happen. And after the great white throne judgment, there's something that's going to happen. But for this to happen, this pillar has to happen first. For these things to happen here, this pillar has to happen first. And for these things to happen, this pillar needs to happen. So what starts the clock of all of this is the rapture of the church. That's why, friend, whoever brought you to church today wants you to understand that in order to be raptured, to go with God in heaven, you got to accept Jesus Christ today. Now listen to this. The book of Revelation... The Bible says, chapter 19, verse 10, that Jesus Christ is the spirit of the prophecy. Why? Because the book of Revelation reveals Christ. Everything about the book of Revelation is centered and focused on Christ. Christ is picking up the church. Christ is coming back. Christ is going to do judgment. Christ is going to be, it's all about Christ. Now, but in order for us to understand the book of Revelation, we must unfold it chronologically. Now, I told you that God, in eternity, there's no time. Because everything happens and everything is, rather, at the same time. But God takes what is in eternity and he manifests it through a chronological order. Chronological order. So, so this is important for us to understand the context of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is Jesus, right? The revelation is Jesus. When we talk about revelation, uh, the revelation is not a dragon or the antichrist or a beast. The revelation of the book of Revelation is Christ. That's why it's a blessing to read the book. Because it's going to reveal that in spite of the antichrist, in spite of the beast, in spite of the false prophet, Christ is going to win. In spite of all the things that's going to happen in the planet, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, Jesus Christ is going to come down and establish his kingdom forever. And so the revelation is not, many people don't read the book of Revelation because they're scared of the dragons and they're scared of demons and they're scared of the Antichrist. No, no, no. You're focusing on the wrong character in the book. The character of the book is Christ because once he comes, he sets everything in order. 
Now, book of Revelation focuses on Christ. Now, Christ is the highlight because the writer of Revelation wants to highlight the person of Christ. Why the person of Christ? Because when he came, when he was born, he came as a lamb. But now when he comes in Revelation, he's coming as the lion of, a tri of the tribe of Judah. When he came, when he was born, he went to the slaughter. They killed him. When he came, to, uh, when, when he was born, he, he, he was like a, sh a sheep into the slaughter. He gave his life. But when he's coming back, he ain't coming back and letting them whip him in the back. When he's coming back, he's coming with a sword in his hand, fire coming out of his eye. He's going to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He who was, who is, and is to come. He's coming to conquer. That's why, church, you need to understand that the God of revelation, the God that conquers, the God that overcomes, the God that's victorious, is the God you serve. That's why when I hear what Paul says, when he says, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, I understand that if Jesus is in me, he's greater than the devil, he's greater than sin, he's greater than the enemy, because there's no weapon formed against us that would prosper if Jesus is Lord of all. So it talks about the person of Jesus. But then it talks about the power of Jesus. The book of Revelation highlights that Jesus is all powerful. And when we come here, now I'll explain that later, when he comes here, you're going to have the false prophet, the antichrist, right? The system of the beast. All fighting, getting ready to fight God in the, in the Valley of Armageddon. And, and they're coming with an army to fight the God, to fight Jesus. But Jesus is going to come down with a host of angels. And he's going to come down on a white horse. And Jesus ain't got to fight nothing. Just by opening his mouth, he's going to destroy everybody. Because there's so much power in Jesus' authority. There's so much power in Jesus' mouth. That with one uttering of his word, he's going to annihilate the enemy. Put him in a thousand. Oh, man, I, listen, 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 listen. you never seen power. Like the power of Jesus. There's power in Jesus. So Revelation reveals the person of Christ. It reveals the power of Christ. But it reveals the program or the agenda of Christ. Jesus ain't coming back because he ain't got nothing to do in heaven. He's coming back because he's got an agenda. And Jesus' agenda is going to happen right after here. Read chapter 21, 22. Jesus is coming with an agenda in mind. So the revelation is given from the Father to Jesus, who then delegates it to, to the angel, who then gives it to John the Apostle. And he does this so that John could write this to the church so that the church could be on the know of Jesus' return. Now, when we look at the book of Revelation, there are four ways to interpret the book of Revelation. Again, this is a Bible study today, so take it easy. There are four ways to interpret the book of Revelation. We have what they call the allegorical approach, which means the allegorical approach means that the book of Revelation is not a literal writing, but everything is typology, similes, and allegory, right? And you can look at it that way, but those of, you that, those of us that study theology, we know that the, the book of Revelation is a book that has this... This, this, this concept in it now, but not yet. There's some things in Revelation that have the implication of now, because when John wrote, and I'll explain that in one of the other uh, approaches, when John writes, there's an element of now, but there's also an element of not yet. And that's what makes this book prophetic. That some things happen, but some things haven't happened yet. And so the allegorical approach is to look at the Bible, look at the book of Revelation, and everything, see it from an allegorical point of view. The dragon, right? As a matter of fact, there, there, there's, a, there's, there's a scripture, the book of Revelation, which we'll read later, that says that, that, that a dragon was flying, and the fire came out of his eyes or his mouth. John uses that allegorical illustration based on his finite technological way of thinking. Now, let, let me give you my interpretation. Do I think that there's going to be a dragon coming, a, a dragon coming, spitting out fire like Godzilla? No. 
John doesn't know what a plane is, a war plane is, that spits out missiles and bombs. So in, in John's mind, the only thing he could compare a flying airplane to is a flying dragon or a, a, a bird. So when you read the book of Revelation and you start seeing dragons, and you start seeing scorpions coming out of the earth, he don't know what a tank is. Because there's no such thing as tanks. So he's using allegorical illustrations from his mindset and his environment to explain catastrophes that's going. How is it that a scorpion is going to kill one third of the earth? Come on, a scorpion? Now, now, now if, if that's a tank that throws bombs and missiles, but John is using allegor so does an allegorical approach to the book of Revelation. Now that you have also the preterist, preterist approach, and these applied the allegorical approach, but they also added that the book was written in 70 AD, meaning that everything that John wrote was fulfilled in 70 AD. Why 70 AD? What happened in the year 70 after Christ? The church was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. So some believe that the book of Revelation finished and was fulfilled at 70 AD, which that theory isn't true because the book of Revelation is anchored on Christ. And one of the elements of the book of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. Jesus didn't come in 70 AD. But there's some truth to that, but that's not the whole truth. But there are people that believe in the preterist approach because of the destruction of the temple. So to the Jews and the Gentiles who were Christians, the temple being destroyed was a big thing. So they concluded, well, then Revelation is fulfilled. The third approach is the historical approach, which says that the book of Revelation is a narrative of the church history in its last 2,000 years. Now, the problem is that not two historians agree among themselves about the history of the book of Revelation. Some says the history has different outcomes. Others say they have the same. And so there's, there's always this debacle between historians and theologians. So, so there is some truth to it, but there's not complete truth to it. And then you have the futuristic approach which is a literal approach of interpreting the book of Revelation. Now, what's my way of seeing the book of Revelation? I feel that it's the reconciliation of all four approaches because some of the writings in the book of Revelation could be allegorical, others could be preterist, others could be historical, and others could be futuristic. So I cannot bind myself to a specific way of, of reading the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is a now but not yet book. And that's important for you to know. Listen, what I'm teaching right now, I learned in seminary. So you guys, you're about to graduate with a master's degree, by the way. Now, there are three major groups, members of the Bible, in the Bible, of human family. When you read, and this is the point, when you read the book of the Bible, the Bible is written to address three people groups. People group number one. We find it in Genesis. Okay? People group number two. We find it, let me make it simple. You have the Gentiles, you have the Jews, and you have the church or the Christians. The whole book is focused on the Jews, Genesis chapter 12, the Gentiles, and the Christians. Now, regarding the Christians, the Christians began as of Acts chapter 2. That's when the Christians began. Christianity began, Acts chapter 2. But the first 2,000 years of human history, we see it from Adam all the way to Abraham. From Adam to Abraham, you have 2,000 years of history. And those 2,000 years of history was God dealing with the Jews. Okay? It was God dealing with the Jews. Now, from Genesis 12 to Acts chapter 1, is God now dealing with Gentiles and Jews. So Genesis 1, Acts chapter 1 is Jews only. Okay? Genesis 1 to Acts chapter 1, Jews only. Now, when you look at Acts chapter 2, 
Acts chapter 2 now is Jews, Gentile, and Christian. And it's important you see that because for every pillar, God is reaching a people group. Listen to me. From the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 through Revelation 22, you're going to see that God's approach now is with Jews, Gentiles, and Christians. And in the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, because Daniel is a prophetic book. And in order to understand some of the things in Revelation, you have to go to the book of Daniel. And to understand Daniel, you got to go to Revelation. But the book of Daniel is the timeline for the Gentiles. It's God's timeline working with the Gentiles. And it starts all the way back in history from the Babylonian captivity. And it takes, book of Daniel, and it takes the Gentiles into an eternal future. The book of Ezekiel, on the other hand, is a book that was written also, I'm sorry, it was written for the Jews, and it also starts with the Babylonian captivity, and it takes them all the way into eternity. So Ezekiel's approach is timeline for God's people, Israel. Daniel's approach is God's timeline for the Gentiles. And then we see in the book of Acts, God's timeline with the Christian church. The book of Revelation is the timeline for us Christians. And it starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it takes Christians into eternity. That's why Revelation is a book for the Christian. Which is why, well, in every dispensation, God saves. When, when, when the church goes up to heaven, when the church is ascended, God's going to work again with the Jews, 144,000, we're going to explain that week three, which are Jews that are going to be here while the church is in heaven because, the, well, I'll explain it next week. Not yet, not yet. Take it easy. Here's another thing about the, about, the, about the book of Revelation and the Bible. The Bible is designed and written within the context of it being linear, not circular. You cannot read the Bible with a circular approach. What's a circular approach? The circular approach of religion is where people get the mindset of reincarnation. And there's a religion out there that says you live your life and you die and you're going to be reincarnated depending on your acts and how you live. You might become a horse. You might become a roach. You might become a bird. You might become a turtle. You might become an ant. Which means you're here and you evolve into something else and you live a circular life based on your faith. That is not true. We believe in the linear lifestyle because that's the, mind, that's the model the Bible teaches. That, 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 that life is designed to be linear. That's why Jesus says stuff like, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. There's a line. There's a timeline. There's a series of events. For Christians, the Bible teaches us that we do not reincarnate. Instead, we become glorified bodies, which is a different thing. I'm not, when I go to heaven, I'm not going to turn into a turtle. Devil is a liar. I'm going to turn into the best version of Gabby in all of his life. You're not going to turn into a hippopotamus. You're going <laughs> to, if you're a hippopotamus, listen, listen, let me say still. We're going to be glorified. We're going to, you, you know what's that, to have a glorified body? That you don't get sick no more? That you can think Saturn and you're in Saturn in seconds? You're going to have the body of Christ. The Bible says when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he walked through a wall. You're going to have a glorified body. There's not, sin can't touch you. The devil can't touch you. You're going to be victorious. And that's, and that's the time. And that's why you're here right now and you're serving Jesus. But I'm here to tell you, keep on walking. Keep on serving. Keep on walking. Because by the time God gets through with you, glorified body. We're going to be like Christ. So the question is, if, life, if the Bible gives us a roadmap that is linear, and there's an alpha and an omega, a beginning and the end, so then where are we right now? Where am I right now? Here's where we are. What does this pillar represent? So where are we in history? 
sorry in history. We're somewhere here right now. Right here. Right here. Now, 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 now. Being right here is a what we call a dispensation or a period of time because throughout the Bible, God works through dispensations. And in the Bible, there are seven dispensations. Seven dispensations. Or seven periods of time that God dealt with mankind. Let me show you all the dispensations so that you can know where you're at. The first dispensation, we see it in the book of Genesis, which is the dispensation of, somebody put it on the screen, the dispensation of innocence. What's the dispensation of, of innocence? Dispensation of innocence was when God created Adam in the image and the likeness of God, and God was innocent of sin. He lived a perfect life. And God, you know, pe people when they read the book of, the book of Genesis, they, look, they read the book, uh, the, the story and the narrative of Adam falling into sin, we read that book, right? We read the book of Genesis, and it says God made him in chapter 3, He's two, he, he sinned by chapter three. We think that that chapter two, chapter three is like a week away from each other. But that's not true. Adam lived thousands of years. Well, hundreds of years. 900 to be exact. Listen, he lived those years and he lived those years with a purpose. And in that state of innocence, Adam was fulfilling his purpose. And that was a time in the life of humanity that God was working with man. Why do I know it took Adam so long to live? The dude had to name every animal on the planet. How, let me say this. How is it that Adam is going to go into the deepest part of the sea and name a whale, or name an electric eel. How does he do that? I believe Adam had a glorified body. I believe Adam could, could just, like Aquaman, he could go under the water and be there for three weeks. Hippopotamus. Catfish. He had a glorified body. He was, let us make man in our image and light. He was made in the image of God. Now, in the dispensation of innocence, God dealt with Adam in that dispensation. From the dispensation of innocence comes the next dispensation, which is the dispensation of conscience. Which now that dispensation is, Adam is aware of the difference between good and evil. And because of his sin, he's castigated, cast out the garden. And now he's living a dispensation of sin, and God in that dispensation deals with Adam. He doesn't leave Adam. He doesn't reject Adam. He doesn't throw him out. Matter of fact, Revelation, Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says, and God made tunics of skins and covered his nakedness. God dealt with Adam's sin even after he sinned because in every dispensation, God always reaches out to restore and save mankind. So you had the dispensation of innocence, you had the dispensation of conscience. The third one is the dispensation of human government. How do we do life now? Because God gave us rules. God gave us structure. We jacked up. We messed up. God kicked out the garden. So now God is going to establish a system, not theological, a system of government. That's where we get kings and we get leadership. And we get, he established another dispensation. And through that dispensation, God was always reaching towards man. To let him know that I am here for you. Even in the dispensation of human government, I can be your king. Fourth dispensation, dispensation, we find it in Genesis chapter 12, which is the dispensation of promise. When now God tells Abraham, look at the stars and count them. 
and count the sand in the sea. And as you cannot count the sand in the sea, nor count the stars in the sky, so your descendants be. And you, and he says, and I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to others. And those that bless you, I will bless. And those that curse you, I will curse. And through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. That's the dispensation of promise. God made a promise to Abraham that out of his descendants, he's going to raise up a nation. He's going to raise up a people to fulfill God's plan. And through that dispensation, God was there with Abraham. God was there with Isaac. God was there with Jacob. God was there with Joseph. God was there through all of that era of dispensation. You see God's favor working on behalf of the Abrahamic covenant. The next dispensation was the, was the bad one which is a dispensation of the law. And this one started when the people were in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering, and in the wilderness, God said, okay, you guys have been, you guys been in Egypt for 400, 420 years, been in Egypt, slaves of Pharaoh, slaves of Pharaoh, thinking like Egyptians, acting like Egyptians, walking like Egyptians, and so where I want to take you, where I want to take you, Y'all can't go into this promised land with this Egyptian mindset. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish some laws. I'm going to establish some structure so that you can start detoxing from the way you think before I brought you into the wilderness. Because the law I'm going to give you is going to help you understand the things I want to do through you. So now he gave them the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath. And he gave them rules and he gave them law. But the problem with the rules and the law is that they couldn't live up to it. They couldn't live up to it. Which let me tell you, the worst dispensation to have lived in was the dispensation of the law. If some of us were living in the dispensation of the law, we would have been stoned to death. Because if you committed adultery, they will kill you in front of everybody, and even little kids will stone you to death. If you took what didn't belong to you, there was the thing called the law of the talion. Which that law of the talion means an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So if you took something, they'll take it from you. If you cut somebody's arm, they're going to cut your arm off. If you, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Hey, what happened to your arm? You come to church armless, and then next week you come footless. And, and the more you do, you, you, it was an eye for an eye. And here's what's crazy. Jesus didn't come to the world in the dispensation of innocence. He didn't come to the world in the dispensation of conscience. He didn't come to the world in the dispensation of human government. He didn't come in the dispensation in any other one other than the dispensation of the Lord. You know why? Because from heaven, Jesus is saying, mankind cannot live up to the standard of the law. And they're going to live and sacrifice and kill animals for the rest of their lives. And that doesn't work. So I'm going to come to the planet and I'm going to fulfill the law so that if you accept me through me, you fulfill the law and you're no longer bound by the law of the word, you're bound by the grace of God. Jesus came in the most challenging dispensation. And he came to fulfill. That's what, that's what he said. Jesus said, I ain't come to break the law. I came to fulfill it. So that once I fulfill it, those who come after me, because of me fulfilling the law, you walk into the power of grace. And so now, the next dispensation from the law is where we're at today. When did the dispensation of grace begin? The dispensation of grace began the moment Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, took the keys from the devil of the gate hell in the grave, rose in all power, and went there. From that moment, look at what happened. From Genesis chapter 1 to Matthew 28, there was a, a clock moving. It was a clock going. That's when you read the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And it was the beginning and the night, the first day. From the moment God created heaven and earth, the clock started ticking. Innocence. Man sin. Consciousness. Human government. Law, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, the clock stopped ticking. Because grace stopped 
the clock. The power of Jesus on the cross was so powerful. That's why, that's why we have this thing called B.C. before Christ, A.D. after Christ. The power of Jesus on the cross was so powerful that it divided time in half. But not only did it divide time in half, it also stopped the clock in eternity. And today, you that are here and I that I'm here, we're living right here in the period of grace. clock isn't moving. But there's another dispensation, which is the seventh dispensation. The seventh dispensation is going to happen right here. From here to there. And that seventh dispensation is called the millennial reign of Christ. When Jesus comes back and he's going to reign for a thousand years, he's going to bind the devil up in, 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 in hell. And for a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign here. But this is where we're at right now, in the clock, in the chronological clock of God. We're right here. The clock is stopped. And we're living in the grace. And so the writer is getting this revelation to tell us, listen, Jesus is coming. And the church is going to be caught up. And we're going to go to heaven. And so, and so while we're here, while we're here, while we're here, what do we do? While the clock is in pause. What do we do? While God has given us, that's what grace is. Grace is, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to put pause on this. And I'm going to give you. Oh, I'm going to take it, but I got to teach. Suavemente. The Bible talks about some weeks. And right now, I in the prophetic book of the Bible, we are living what we call this. Y'all ready for this? I'm going to explain this more tomorrow. So make sure you come to prayer and we do that. The Bible talks about 70 weeks in the book of Daniel. And the 70 weeks is one of the most important detailed messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. This thing about the 70 week is so powerful. Messianic is talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This thing about the 70 weeks, and we're going to read all the scripture, and it's going to sound a little dragging, but I want you to capture what I'm telling you. The 70 weeks is so quintessential because the 70 weeks tell us that, that, that God stopped the clock on week 69, and that's where we're at today. But then the clock is going to start on, seven, on the 70th week, and what's, what, what's going to trigger the clock? Let's read what the Bible says. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 through 27. Daniel is writing this letter. Well, this letter was written. This revelation was given to Daniel as a result of Daniel praying to God, asking God to forgive him for his sins and the sins of Israel. And as a result of that prayer, then now God sends the angel Gabriel and gives him this message. Okay, and this is the message. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and my request and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill while I was still in prayer Gabriel is the man but that's the angel angel the man I had seen earlier in the earlier vision came to me in a swift flight he was flying about the time of the evening sacrifice he instructed me and said to me Daniel I have now come to give you insight and understanding as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you for your highly esteemed. Consider, therefore, the word and understanding the vision. Here it comes, verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's important, because when we come here, when we get here, three and a half years here, you're going to understand what the holy place is. Verse 25. Know and understand this. From the time your word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the anointed one, talking about Christ, 
the ruler comes, there will be 70, I'm sorry, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. What is he trying to say? But again, he's just being simple, right? Let me explain. He says, from the time until the anointed one, the ruler comes, until the ruler comes, there's going to be seven sevens. Until the ruler comes, remember, Daniel's praying for God to forgive Israel, to forgive his people. And God is saying, the anointed one is going to come. But here's the cue. He's going to come after the seven sevens is fulfilled. Now, when the rapture goes up, the clock starts ticking again. And it's going to take seven years. Seven years into the ticking, the anointed one is going to come down. The clock isn't ticking because we're still here in grace. But God is telling Daniel, through the angel, listen, the anoint Jesus is going to come back at the end of the seven sevens. There it is. He says, the anointed one, the ruler will come. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Listen to this. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. But in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. I told you, the book, you, you can't read it chronological. I'm going to explain that in a minute. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. At the end, at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured on him. Now, let me explain the divisions of the sevens and then we'll close. In verse 24, Gabriel says, 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Most of the commentators agree that the 70 sevens should be understood as 70 weeks of years. In other words, a period of 490 years. That's important. These verses provide a sort of clock that gives us an idea when the Messiah would come and some events that will accompany his appearance. Now, the prophecy goes on to divide the 490 years into three smaller units. Let me explain that. And one seven years, the final week of seven years is further divided in half. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Verse 25, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, seven sevens is 49 years and 62 sevens is another 434 years. This is important. So you have 49 years plus 434 years equals 483 years. So 490 years minus 483 is seven years. I, I, Pastor, I don't understand it. You come tomorrow. This it is. The prophecy of the 70 weeks summarizes what happens before Jesus is set up on his millennial kingdom. Now listen to this. Gabriel said, that the prophetic clock will start at the time that the decree was issued to rebuild Jerusalem. From that date of that decree to the time of the Messiah, 483 years had passed. So we know from history that the, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given to, listen to this, listen to this, was given to King Arxerxes, this is in Daniel, and you find in Nehemiah chapter two, 21, verse 1 and 8, 2, 1 and 8. The first unit of the 49 or the seven years covers the time that it took to rebuild Jerusalem. This is important. With streets in the trench, but in times of trouble. Using the Jewish custom of a 360 day per year, 483 years after, 445 before Christ, places us 30 AD. What happened in 30 AD? Jesus' public ministry. So what's happening? All this seven sevens and seven and sixty-two sevens. What that is prophesying is that when this 
627 comes fulfilled, that Jesus was going to show up on the planet and he was going to start his public ministry. The prophecy in Daniel 9 specifies that after the completion of the 483 years, the anointed one will be cut off. This happened at the age of 33. And that didn't happen until the 62 sevens came to pass. And this is something Daniel is writing hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. And Jesus died at the exact seven that God told the angel to tell Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. So the final week of the 70 weeks, of the 77s, we have 69 that have been fulfilled in history, which leaves us with one more seven to be yet fulfilled. And that seven cannot start because we're right here at grace and the clock isn't moving. But once Jesus takes his church, the last seven begins and it starts ticking and it starts ticking. And it starts ticking, and it starts ticking. And why was it paused? Because God is working with his people, and God is working with the Jews, with the Gentiles, and the church, so that we can understand that the days are coming. That's why when I read the book of Revelation, it excites me, it blesses me to know that God has made a way for me to escape. Listen to me. So, so how do I know Jesus is coming? Read Matthew 24. The disciples said, Lord... Give us a sign. Give us a sign of when you're coming. And Jesus, I'll give you the sign, the sign of Jonah. And then he says, here's what you're going to see. There'll be earthquakes. Kingdoms against kingdoms. Nation against nation. And when you start seeing this, you know that my coming is at hand. Where are we right now? We're right here. And what's happening in the globe right now? Nations against nations. Kingdom against kingdom. Sicknesses everywhere. When you read Matthews 24 and you compare it to what CNN, what other news outlet? Fox, NBC. When you look at the news and you read Matthews 24, you're going to realize that what Jesus was telling us, we're living at the moment where Jesus is going to come right now. Every prophecy has been fulfilled except the one of Jesus' return. And we're right here, right now, in the dispensation of grace, and the clock isn't moving, and God is saying, here's what I want you to do. Matthew 28, go into the world and preach this gospel so that none perish, but everyone can have eternal life. So where are we in history? Right there. Now look at what's going to happen. Can I go? I can. I'll just give you a snippet. Week 69, we're right here. When 1 Thessalonians comes to pass, and the Lord himself shall descend with heaven with a shout, with a trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who have been, then we who are alive who remain, we shall be caught up with him. The word caught up is the word we use to interpret rapture because rapture is not in the Bible. But the word caught up is snatched and we will be caught up and be, and be with the Lord in the air. Now, once the church is caught up, the clock starts ticking and the clock is going to tick seven years. From the rapture to the second coming, there's seven years that's going to happen. We're going to talk about that the seven years is broken down in two, three and a half years and three and a half years. The first three and a half years, once the rapture happens, is what we call the tribulation period. Tribulation. And that's when the trumpets and the seals, the seals and the trumpets are going to be broken. And we're going to explain all that stuff. And some things are going to happen here that's going to affect humans, is going to affect the ecosystem is going to affect everything. And why is God allowing all this to happen, all this purging? Because God has a plan over here. Because he's coming in his second coming, and he can't come reign in an earth full of sin. So he has to purge the earth, clean the earth, so that when he comes, he comes in rule and glory. So, so the first three and a half years is what they call the tribulation period. The second half, or the other three and a half years is what we call the 
great tribulation, which means if you thought it was bad these three and a half years, baby, it's going to get worse these three and a half years. The difference is that in, right in the middle of three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to say, I want you all to worship me, those that stood behind. And those who don't accept the Antichrist to be God, they're going to kill, they're going to be killed, and believe, some people believe they're going to be decapitated for the cross. It, it, it's this whole thing that's going to happen. And there's going to be affliction and all that chaos. But when Jesus then comes, he's going to conquer. But now, 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 when the rapture happens, where are we going to go? Heaven. And we're going to be in heaven for how long? Come on, come on. Now, while this is happening down here, what are we going to be doing up here? Because we're going to go up, but then we're going to go up. Skip all this. We're taking a, we're taking a bridge, paying the toll. Well, the toll Jesus paid for it. We're going to go up, and then we're going to come with him here. So all of this we're not going to experience. So the question is, what are we going to do in heaven? In heaven, we're going to be in the bride of the Lamb. We're going to be getting married with Christ. We're going to have a party. Can you imagine a seven-year party? All the pina coladas you could drink. Seven years. But seven years. But during those seven years, there's this thing called the judgment, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is different from the tribulation, of the, the, the judgment of the great white throne. The judgment of the great white throne is not for the church. The judgment seat of Christ is for the church. Because here, once we're caught up in heaven, God's going to take us. Remember. God has a program. He has a system. He has a plan. So when we get caught up, we're not just going to party. Talk about, no. There's a reason why we get caught up. We're going to be redeemed. We're going to have a glorified body. And then we're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ. This is to be church. And in the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to ask, God is going to evaluate everything you did for Christ as a Christian. And he's going to put your works to go through fire. Some will be turned gold, some will be turned silver, or some is going to be hay. So this is important because when we come back with Christ, we're coming back to reign. And we're going to have crowns. And some people are going to have a thousand diamonds in their crown because they did so much for Jesus. Some of y'all are going to have a leaf around your, on your head. Because you're going to do nothing for Jesus. But hey, we're going to make it We're going to make it heaven, so that's good. So, so, so what, what, once we're there, once we're there, once we're there, whatever we did on earth, God is going to, in the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to reward us and give us, the Bible talks about five crowns that there, he has for the crown of life, right, right, the incorruptible crown. There's different crowns, the, the, the Revelations 2.10, he's going to give us crowns based on the things we did for Christ while we were here so that when we come back, we're going to come back with Jesus. He's going to overcome the devil, destroy the enemy, and then in the millennial reign of Christ, God's going to need mayors and kings and queens, and for thousands years, those of us that were faithful to God on earth while we were here in the dispensation of grace, working, evangelizing, sowing, tithing, giving of our best, God's going to make us kings and queens, and we're going to come back here, and we're going to reign with Jesus, and you're going to be in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's why you can't be a Christian and do nothing. Now, now, we're not saved by works. But we are rewarded by works. And it would be sad that I see you in heaven coming down here talking about, hey, what's up with your crown? Dude, you know. No. Everything you do for Christ, every time you serve in the kingdom, God is archiving all that stuff. I don't know, but nobody recognizes what I do. Don't There's a book in heaven. I'd rather get recognized for all of eternity by God himself than the pastor give me a plaque at the end of a service. I'd rather be recognized with a crown that says, I want 2,000 people for Jesus. I helped somebody today like I never helped nobody before. I gave food to the homeless. I sold to the project of the church. Then when I come back with Jesus, the world, the people's going to see that I didn't waste my salvation experience just coming to church and clapping my hands. But I did this with a sense of urgency. I want everybody I know to come to Jesus so that they don't go through hell, but together we can come with Jesus and reign with Jesus to be forever with him, like him. That's why John says, I'm done, I'm done. That's why John says, blessed are those who hear the words, who listen, and who take hold of 
So friend, you have the blessing of being right here, right now. The clock is stopped. Because God wants you to get saved. Because God wants you to be caught up. God has brought you here to give you an opportunity to be saved. So that when the trumpet sounds, what is a trumpet in the Bible? A trumpet is an alert, an alert, an alert, an alert. Listen, listen. You're going to hear a trumpet whether you like it or not. Coming to Jesus? All right. All right. Stay right here. You're, you're going to hear a trumpet whether you like it or not. But not everybody gets to hear the trumpet of 1 Thessalonians. Only the Christians will hear the trumpet of God. If you miss that trumpet, you're going to hear seven trumpets. But those seven trumpets are seven trumpets of judgment. Seven trumpets of destruction. The Bible says, and the first angel blew his trumpet. Oh God, wait till we get into that. But you're either going to hear the trumpet to save you. message has inspired you. As a place of hope, our church is committed to reach our community. If you'd like more information about New Birth, visit our website at nbplaceofhope.com.